They're friends of Christ. When the Israelites had moved from a nomadic community to an agricultural one, that is, when they had finally settled down in the promised land of Canaan, they adopted some of the ceremonies that were proper to such an economy that they were now living in. And the Israelites adopted ceremonies to worship the true God, Yahweh. Deuteronomy 26 records the first instance of the ceremony of offering of first fruits, the best of the harvest, to him. Moses wrote, When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, then some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord God is giving you, and put them into a basket. And the Israelite would respond there later, He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. He says, Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things that the Lord your God has given you and your household. It was Yahweh who had provided the sun, the rain, the seed, and was also the one who saw to the growth. He provided the soil as well. And so it was only right that Yahweh should receive his share of the produce, the results. The Israelites, they knew that, strictly speaking, the whole harvest belonged to Yahweh. But just as he had shared with them, they would dedicate some of it to him. And it was to be used by the priest for holy purposes. Elements of the custom of offering the first fruits of the harvest, they really found their way into three great festivals of Israel. At the Feast of the Passover and Unleavened Bread, according to Leviticus 23, the pilgrims, they brought along and they offered first fruits. It says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land that I am going to give you and you reap the harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf, a container, of the first grain that you harvest. We know that that Passover time would take place normally in March or April at the time of the moon seasons and the calendar year. The Feast of Pentecost, that was also called the Day of First Fruits, as in Numbers 28. On that day of first fruits, when you present to the Lord an offering of new grain during the festival of weeks, hold a sacred assembly and do no work. That normally took place in the time of May and June. And then the first fruits of wine, well, that had to wait later in the year, September, October time frame. The Feast of the Tabernacles, when those grapes had ripened, that shows that the offering of the best of anything back to God He was the one who gave it to them in the first place. And that giving to him was both common and it was expected. It's a concept that we can adopt and adapt to our own present-day lives. When the harvest starts to come in and the first round of crops are picked, it's not only a time of rejoicing and thanks, it's also a promise of more to come. There is also great hope that is harvested as well. Now, we do have our modern equivalent of the harvest. We know it as payday. That's the regular weekly, every two weeks or monthly day 
when the fruits of our labor are reaped. And it's in dollars instead of crops. That reminds us that before we pay our debts and we perhaps set aside some for a rainy day, we're to offer a portion, a healthy portion to the Lord, giving back to him what we have accomplished by his grace. The scriptures tell us that a tenth or a tithe is a good standard to use. I said standard, not an exact measurement. We don't need to become like the Pharisees and measure our exact amounts, saying that I'll give $5 or 10 or 20 or 50 We give from the top, the best. We give from our earnings. We don't give from the bottom or the leftovers because we want to show gratitude. It's not like we're paying off God. We do it also because we want the rest of our expenditure of our money to be as holy and dedicated to God's purpose as our first fruits. And while some people say that the topic of money should be avoided in church, the Bible doesn't shy away from the topic at all. And neither does Jesus himself. As he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And while most of us know those words, we can often perhaps get those words mixed up and instead quote it as saying, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But Jesus knew how people function, and while our money will often follow our hearts, you only have to look at where a person is investing to find out where their priorities are today. And there's reasons why money needs to be addressed at the local level. Churches need the giving of someone to exist. Now, there are some churches that have congregational subsidies from their denomination. That means that somebody somewhere is giving so that it can happen for them. There's other congregations that depend on endowment funds, which means that someone gave in the past so that they can exist today. Many congregations like our church and school have independent finances and depend solely on the generosity of the members. But it's not just about the practical side. It's about the discipleship side as well. And throughout the Bible, money is used as a spiritual barometer because ultimately it says something about our relationship with God. It pulls back the curtains to reveal what's most important in the lives of God's people. Giving isn't about the church's need to receive as much as it is about our need to give. Our handling of money is a reflection of the importance that we place on our relationship with God. A question would come up, well, what sacrifices need to be made to support his work? And what in life do we value higher than him? We know that each of us will spend what we have somewhere, right? And here is the truth of the matter, told by the master of the truth himself. Jesus says in Luke 16, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's look at a portion of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 today. And Paul says, now he, being God, 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Generosity isn't just giving. You can give and not be generous. Generosity isn't an amount. It's a principle. If generosity was simply an amount, then generosity will look the same for me as it does for Bill Gates. So let's go back to where Paul begins this section with the words that he shares in verse 6. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. A farmer who plants only a few seeds is going to get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will have a generous crop. So the first thing that we learn here is that nobody loses by being generous. The challenge for most of us when it comes to giving is the question, if I give that amount, how will I... And you can fill in the blanks. If I give to that homeless person downtown Chicago my change, how will I afford my coffee later? If I sponsor a child through a charity, how will I be able to afford to upgrade my internet? If I give a tithe of my income, how will I survive on what is left? And while the blanks may have been filled in differently 2,000 years ago, the questions were the same. And that wasn't a concern for a widow who went to the temple. Jesus, calling his disciples to himself, said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. As we look forward to accomplishing much in our fast-forward capital campaign, Our focus should be that we are simply being obedient to what God has in asking us to give, knowing that we can never outgive God. The secret is not in the amount. The secret is in the obedience. To answer the objections that were probably on the hearts, if not the lips, of those early Christians, Paul ends up using the analogy of the farmer and the seed. And in that culture, most people knew how things were grown. And so Paul compares our giving to seeds. Plant a few seeds, get a small crop. Plant generously and reap a generous crop. But you have to believe. If you don't believe that the crop is in the seed, you're never going to plant it. If you don't believe that God will bless your generosity, you'll never be generous. Nobody is a loser by being generous. It was Anne Frank who wrote in her diaries while she was hiding from the Nazis, she said, no one has ever become poor by giving. And Christian Beauvais, he says, examples are few of men who are ruined by giving. The next thing we discover in 2 Corinthians 9 is that Paul says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity is a journey. It's not a destination. 
One misconception people can believe is that you have to have all of your finances in order before you give. The first step to generosity is to give. That sounds odd when you think that you don't have anything to give. But even giving the first dollar is an act of faith in God who provides. Here at Trinity, we know that people are moved in different ways at different times of their lives. There's an initial decision about your generous response to God and what he's doing through Trinity, following all the way to an over-the-top, open-handed response like we see described in Acts 2, where all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. A ladder. It's not just an ordinary ladder. It's a generosity ladder. And as you listen and you find out about these steps, see where you fit in for yourself at this point. Visitors who come to Trinity, they are known to us as our guests. And there may come a time when a newer tender comes to feel, yeah, I am family here. And if you are a guest, is God calling you to take the first step in joining our family at Trinity in God's mission to make a difference in our community, to make a difference in the lives of the people who call Trinity their spiritual home? That first step, that can lead to more occasional giving, more instances of generosity as you continue to follow the nudge that God gives you. Even when that nudge is in your pocketbook, you begin to hold your change and your bills with an open hand. An open hand is able not only to receive, but also to give. A clenched fist, a closed fist, you can't give, and you can't receive either. God's next step for you is to be intentional. Not just to offer something that's handy, like a bit of your surplus, but to plan to give. And when you've recognized that it's all His, your budget will be an identifiable, consistent pattern of giving. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. Now taking this step can be scary. We can all feel uncertain about tomorrow, and that includes uncertainty about the resources we will have tomorrow and what tomorrow may bring. After all, who needs one more thing to squeeze into a tight budget? What God is asking you to do in this step is to trust him. He's the one who knows all about tomorrow. Intentional giving, it raises questions like, how much? How often? Those are good questions. God is really shifting your thinking, your view of your own stuff. And your giving should be directly and proportionally tied to what God allows to come into your life. The how much of your generosity, it's tied to his generosity toward you. And what's important is the consistency as a mark of your trust in God. Set a regular amount. Set a regular rhythm. As Proverbs 3 tells us, Honor the Lord with your wealth, 
and with the best part of everything that you produce. Offering envelopes is one tool that we have here to help you grow. Next year, our envelopes, they will no longer be mailed to you bi-monthly. Later this month, around Thanksgiving time, each household who gives will have a box of envelopes that will be set aside for next year. And that will include regular giving funds, plus specials, including our Fast Forward Capital Campaign. Another tool is through, of course, electronic or through online giving. You can arrange for a set amount to be directed to one or more funds at a set interval, like weekly, bi-weekly, twice a month, or once a month. Being intentional brings honor to God. We give off the top not from the bottom of our finances, because we want to reflect the goodness of God. And when you're well into the habit of intentional giving, God will keep nudging you with that how much question. The traditional mark for God's people is the tithe, or one-tenth. Initially, that may sound like a huge amount, but God is working on your heart, and he's giving you an open hand. Tithing is one great way to keep loosening your grip on your stuff. And seeing that 10% is really a small commission to dedicate to the true owner of it all, the one who owns 100%. Take $10 bills. Have nine of those. Those are all for yourself and just one's for God. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, it becomes harder when you add zeros behind these numbers, though, doesn't it, too? If it's $10,000 we have to give God 1000 well, that's what he talks about. But we have so much more for ourselves that he gives us because he gives it all to us. Has your intentional and consistent giving for those who are doing that been loosening you for the practice of tithing? Put the tithe back into God's hands and see the amazing things that he will do with it and how far he'll stretch that other 90% as well. And when people are at the top of the ladder, they find that God has truly given them an abundant life. There's not only enough resources for themselves and for their family, but God also has generously provided for the needs that pop up on the radar of our church and school family here and in our larger community, they start to see God's kingdom as all around them. Instead of storing up the treasures of God's kingdom, this is how money really shows where our heart is. The funny thing about tithing is that you learn that it's not only that you can live on 90%, but as you give even abundantly or extravagantly, You can live on 80% or 70% too. With God, nothing is impossible. Wherever you are on that generosity ladder, I would invite you to pray about taking the next step. The next step that God is offering you to take. And for those who are perfectly considering gifts toward our fast-forward effort, raise your eyes. Raise them to perhaps a higher level than you may have first intended, as you are prayerfully considering in the coming days of making a commitment. 
If developing a budget or getting out of debt is really a step that you need to take, I want you to know that beginning on February 1st and Saturday mornings here, I'll be leading another session of Financial Peace University. It's a place where you can learn. No matter if you're in debt or out of debt, you can grow and learn much more about how God has intended us to be his people. Whatever your next step is, know that God is the one who has begun that good work in you and that he's ready to see you through it. What a joy it is to understand that generous giving isn't giving. It's giving back. You only become generous when you realize that all you have comes from God who gave us his all in Jesus Christ on that cross of Calvary. And because Jesus lives, we too live a new life here, and we look forward to the riches that he has for us in heaven someday. I want to share with you now a short video from B. Fields. She gives in different ways here at our place, and I hope that these words will really make you think about yourself too. When I came to Trinity, this was the largest church I've ever been a member of. And that was somewhat daunting for me because I'm used to a small, more intimate environment. Everyone knows everyone. And I thought that could not happen here at Trinity. And I was wrong. It has happened. In my mind, I look at my Trinity Church family as my the core of my Christian family. But my small group family, they're my spiritual family. They're the ones that I put my arms around and I cry with and I pray with. They're the ones that I celebrate with and we laugh and yes, we pray. They're always there for me. And because I've been in multiple small groups, that spiritual family has grown. They're there to constantly remind me that God loves me and I can always count on them. I believe that all of us who are in small groups feel the same way. And I know with me in particular, I felt this more than I would have imagined at the time that my son was ill. To get that phone call that he had had a stroke and I had to rush, take a plane ride to go to Maryland where he was at the time. And my small group family was there for me. They were there checking on me, making sure that I was okay, checking on my son. That was really a blessing for me. And then most recently, my husband had to have emergency surgery and he was later diagnosed with colon cancer. And it was my small group members who rallied around me and again were checking on me and my family supporting us, taking care of us during this difficult time. So I I just feel that the small group family that we have at Trinity has truly been blessed by God. And I don't know how I could have gotten through a lot of these more challenging situations of the last few years if I hadn't had the support of my church family and especially my small group family. I've been a member of Trinity for 23 years, and I've been a part of three small groups. And what I love about the small groups here is that we have so many different types of small groups. I I believe that there's something for everyone. I've been a part of small groups where the focus has been on scripture. We've gone through the entire Bible. 
There have been Bible studies where we just dealt with life working women and some of the issues that working women may have. But I think my favorite small group that I have is the writing group, the Christian writing group. I joined that one. I am so surprised. I would never have thought that I could do it. But God has brought out a skill in me or a talent, definitely a love, (laughs) that has come forth in my writings. And I write devotionals and I try to inspire and to uh, uplift others through my writing and other members of our team and there's been so much joy that I have received from that and I hope others have received joy from reading those. When I hear fast forward I think God is preparing a miracle. I believe that what we're going to be doing with fast forward is going to be a testimony It's not about what we need to do for the church. Of course, there's so much that needs to be done for the church, but we're going to have personal testimonies. And I think that that's what's going to be the exciting part. All the different testimonies of individuals who's going to say, this is what happened to me when I stepped forward and I did what God has asked me to do. God has taught me that if I am generous, that he will provide. My financial situation has changed since I've been at Trinity, but I continue to give at the same level that I was given previously. And miraculously, we're still able to do what we need to do. So I don't know why, but I'm always amazed how God provides. And and he does. He just he gives us what we need. We just have to have the faith to go forward and then he will make up the rest. I just know that we're going to continue to grow and expand and do God's work going forward. And I can't wait to see it. I pray that these words will touch each of you in a very special way as you live your life for Christ. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all of our understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, who is your Lord and Savior. Amen.